Good morning. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. I was talking to my family this week, and I asked them what they thought if I were to, at some point, stand up and ask you to turn with me to third hesitations, just to see... (laughs) Just to see what happens, and uh, they said that is definite pastor humor. So, which I'm sure meant something really good. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for uh, PCBC, Father God. I, um, God, I, I just want to express my heart to you uh, in this time of praying corporately with the body, God. I want to express my gratitude to you for allowing me to have the opportunity to preach your word. Um, Father, I pray that this privilege, this great, great privilege that I've been allowed to do this morning would not become uh, mundane or or old hat. Um, Father, I never want to stand up here with expectancy that, of course, I get to do this. But it's a a present from you and uh, a kindness, Father, to allow me to be up here to preach your word. So I thank you, Father God, for this church body, for allowing me that opportunity. I thank you, Father, for allowing me that opportunity, and I, I pray that I would not be a a stumbling block or to be in the way of the truth, uh, but that your spirit would powerfully use your word in the lives of your people, Father, so that the church of Jesus Christ could be brighter, could be more vibrant, could truly be the salt that this earth needs. And so, Father, I, I just recognize my great dependency on you to accomplish that. This isn't about what Dan can do. Father, it is, um, it's about us being spectators of what the living God accomplishes. And so I pray, Father, that you would, by your very kind, kind grace, uh, use me now and, Father, open our minds, illuminate our minds to a better understanding which would be followed by a better living. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> so last, last Sunday, uh, when I started the sermon, I started touching on the concept of the depravity of man or, or the fallenness of man. I, speaking on the, the, what the Scripture says about the nature, the character of unsaved mankind. And it's pretty bleak. Uh, It looks really, really bad. As much as some folks want to flatter themselves or we want to flatter some people, the scripture doesn't hold back at all speaking about the depravity of mankind. And we've been seeing that with Isaac, we've been seeing that with Jacob and Esau and this narrative that we're following here with this particular family. I want to turn a page just a little bit this morning in this introduction to this message because I don't want to just leave you there. Because the reality is God in his sovereignty and his goodness comes into a life 
and regenerates a person, makes them new, flips the switch, and they become born again. They become born again to a living hope. And God, in His, in His absolute infinite mercy, then takes us and uses us. This is, this is the, the wow factor in my mind about what God is doing in redemption. One of the many wow factors that God not only comes and takes a broken, sinful, lost person and then makes them new and draws them to himself, but then after he's saved them, he says, now I want to accomplish my purpose in you. I want to accomplish my purpose for you, and I want to accomplish my purpose with you. I want you to be a co-laborer with me in my plan. And I think it's fascinating. I heard one brother say years ago, God doesn't use us because he needs us. He uses us because he loves us. God is not in any way uh, insufficient or, or in great need of you and I to lend a hand so God can accomplish his task. That's not the truth. The truth is, God in His kindness, in His mercy, in His love says, I will use you. You'll be a part of this. With your faults and and all, I will still bring you in. And beloved, I am not speaking about a a perfection. I've, I've heard a pastor say years ago, it's not the perfection, but the direction of a life. It's not that you reach this marker of, now that I'm perfect, I can be used by God. No, it's now that God has caused me to be born again, now that I'm alive spiritually, now that I'm drinking in the Word, now that I have a desire to follow Him, God puts us in, in, in His service and uses us. And i got to say, the, the longer I'm a Christian... The longer I'm alive, point blank, but also especially the longer I'm a Christian, the more I can't believe the reality that God would use us. You look at the 12 that he selected. I wouldn't have picked them. You look at the man standing before you up here with an open Bible and some very badly scribbled notes. I would not pick that man. I I wouldn't. Dan Mason is not the guy I'd pick. And God, just so mysteriously, in his infinite wisdom, picks a whole batch of people and then uses them for his namesake, for his glory. And I stand amazed at what he's putting together. The Lord draws straight with crooked pencils. He uses broken people to accomplish his fantastic purpose. And so I've been pretty hard on Jacob and hard on Rebekah and hard on Isaac. But nonetheless, these are key players in the plan of redemption that the Lord is going to use for his good purpose, and he already has. So let's return back to where we left off last week. If you look in your Bibles, chapter 27, verse 41. If you recall, we had... um, Jacob's game plan, actually Rebecca's game plan, Jacob was a pawn in Rebecca's game plan, to go and sneak in and get a blessing from his father Isaac. Isaac's eyesight's not very good, he can't see, he wants to bless Esau. Go out and kill an animal, bring back food that I love, and after we have a feast, I'll put a blessing upon you. Rebecca says, I have a better idea. She sends Jacob in there with animal hair on his arm, so that way he can pass as Esau. Food she prepared, Jacob blesses him. Then Jacob departs, Esau comes in, absolute devastation. 
Isaac repents, I would argue, from that text for his plan to bless Esau, where he never should have done that. And Esau leaves in what manner? What emotion? Look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. So interesting, isn't it? Sees his brother blessed and his response is hatred. Because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and Esau said to himself, this is fascinating, so follow this carefully. He says to himself, the Bible says, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. In other words, when dad dies, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Now, I find it fascinating. They were told to her. We all have the same question, I hope. By who? Who who told her this? Because when he said this, the scripture says he said this to himself. And so was there some bragging going on? Was there a time where he told a particular servant who told another servant who told another servant? That never happens, right? Ever. And then that person went, and eventually the word got to Rebecca, and Rebecca thought, wow. Wow. I knew he'd be mad, but I didn't think he would try to take the life of his brother. And so the words get to the ears of Rebecca about the jealousy of her son. This led to a plan in the mind and in the heart of Esau to take the very life of his brother. After Isaac's death, he would kill his brother, and somehow Rebekah hears of this. And listen to how she puts it, okay? Look down. But the words, 42, But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau, listen to this, ESV, comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. That's sick. That's unbelievable. He comforts his own heart with, when dad finally goes, I'll get even. My jealousy will be satisfied. My rage will be satisfied. I will finally feel good. I haven't felt good for years after this Jacob guy. He stole my birthright, and now he's stolen the blessing. Once dad dies, then I'm going to take his life, and then finally, sweet revenge will come, and it will taste so good, I can't wait. You hear how messed up that is? I hope you do, beloved. I hope that you are in a state of righteousness and walking in Christ. That for To hear that, that is amazing to you. Now, simultaneously, it's not that amazing. If you believe what the Word says about the heart of man, it's not that far of a stretch. We like to flatter ourselves, we like to practice civil righteousness, and oh, I'm, I'm basically a good person, I never killed anybody, I, I do this, I do that, fill in the blank, and we say, he's a pretty good guy. You know what the scripture says? The Bible, the word of God says, there is no one good, no, not one. That's the word. You know how many times I've said, this guy seems like a good guy? Oh, shut your mouth, Dan. The scripture says with utter clarity, nobody is good before the living God. And so, yes, it's shocking. I understand that. At the same time, it's not that shocking. If you believe what the word says in reference to the character of man, bitter jealousy, 
envy, strife, culminating in this man's heart with no desire to press it down. And ultimately, it leads to him saying, the only way I can draw comfort is by taking the life of my brother. But Jacob's mom really likes him, and so she has another plan. Look down at your Bible. Verse 43. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Fat chance. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. I think it's so interesting. She says, what you have done to him. Mom, it was your plan. (laughs) Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you both in one day. Now, there's a massive thing that comes up, and I'm going to hit it after a little bit. I think it's awesome. Mitch Tingley went right after exactly the the center of this message in his call to worship. And I didn't even talk to him about it. Uh, I didn't even talk to him, period. So... (laughs) But this, this concept of the manipulative, scheming game plan to make something happen. I'm going to touch on that more, but I'm just planting a seed. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. So she is going to plea for Jacob's life because she knows this is going to, this is going to go real bad. And notice, I would argue, some of the naive aspects of this woman that her thought is eventually Esau... Oh, there, let me rephrase that. There's two ways you could look at this. Either she's naive... Or Esau is one whose emotions go up and down to such a way that she's like, he'll get over this eventually. Text doesn't say, so I don't don't know, so I'm going to be careful. But regardless, in her mind, the thought process is, you leave town, you go stay with my brother, you go stay with your uncle for a little bit, and then I'll bring you back once everything calms down. A cooling down period would be the best thing for your brother Esau, because right now he's livid after what you, (laughs) after what you did. verse 44, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. I don't see that happening. Rebecca has put much of her hope in her own capability to plan and arrange for Jacob's protection. Let me read that one more time. Rebecca has put much of her hope in her own capability to plan and arrange for Jacob's protection. Little does Rebecca know this is actually the last goodbye with Jacob. Now, in her game plan, in her mind, this is going to work out beautifully. Remember, it worked out great with the fur on his arms earlier. That worked out, so this will work out too. I've got a plan. You go stay with uncle, and brother will calm down. Then you'll come back. I'll bring you back, and my favorite's alive, and my not-so-favorite's alive, and we'll move forward as a family. But you won't see, Jacob will not be seeing Rebecca again. It's amazing when we think that we have it so planned out, right? We think that we've got such a great design. This is how it's going to work. I've got it all planned out. Everything's going to fall right in line because I am God. Newsflash. 
Notice he says, why should I be bereft of both? If you notice at the very end of, of 45, it says, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Now question, you both who? You both Jacob and Esau or you both Jacob and Isaac? Because remember, Esau said, I'm going to kill him the day dad dies. So who's she talking about? My two boys or my husband and my favorite? Well, it doesn't say. I don't know. My argument would be, you'd be bereft of all three. Because he's in trouble for killing his brother, and you lost your husband. And your whole family has just come apart at the seams. So I don't. I didn't lose much sleep last night over which one it was. Um, And the point being, in the mind of this woman... If I can just separate these two and help this just kind of cool down in my game plan, everything will be just fine. And then everything will come back together and and we'll live happily ever after, sort of. So Isaac will die, Jacob will be killed, Esau will be guilty. That's a horrible thing. And so this woman, in her, please don't miss me on this, you guys, in her good motive makes a plan in her good motive. I don't see anywhere in the text, and by the way, you probably noticed this last week, I may have said this last week, nowhere here do we hear God speak ill of Jacob or of Rebekah. No critique. Now, is there some scheming going on? Yeah, my eyes do not deceive me, that's what's going on. Is there some trickery? Yes. But nowhere does God condemn that. And I just find that fascinating. Esau, you hear much said about him, and even in the New Testament, things said about him, but never a critique of this woman and of Jacob, which tells me the motive of this woman are more than likely mixed. Now, if you notice, look it down at verse 46. She comes to Isaac. Now, guys, I want you to pay careful attention to the wording of Rebekah to Isaac. Nowhere here does she come and say, your son wants to take the life of your other son. Therefore, they've got to be separated because Esau is an animal who wants to kill Jacob. So do something about it. That's not what she says. Listen to how she comes around and says, verse 46, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women, like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, if you back up, look at 26, verse 34. So it's only one page in my Bible. depends on the size of your font. Look at verse 34 in chapter 26. This isn't the first time we've heard this complaint. It says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Birai, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It doesn't tell us how. It doesn't say in what way they made life bitter. All we're told from the word is these women were making life very, very bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So now Rebekah comes to Isaac and says, I loathe my life because of these women. Did she point to the wives of Esau? I don't know. All I know is that she says, these cannot be the people that our son marries. 
Now, isn't it interesting that we were just told, like literally the verses just before this, I want you, Jacob, to go stay with your uncle so that way your brother will calm down, you'll come back, and you won't die. And then all of a sudden she comes to her husband, and the story looks very different, sounds very different. The motive sounds different. The reason sounds different. Is this manipulation? Possibly. Possibly. Is it possible that there's things that are not recorded that were spoken of between them? Sure. But I can't help but recognize the massive contrast between what she just told Jacob and now what she comes and says to Isaac. But regardless, please pay careful attention. Isaac, consistently in his life, has been a man who is submissive. You can go from day one up to this very moment, and you will see most often... This is a submissive man. This is a man who doesn't put up a lot of fight. Even in his trickery to bring Esau to him, you don't see a lot of venom in it, just a desire to be a little bit sneaky, and then was confronted. And I'm not saying that is a negative thing about his submission, beloved. I'm just saying it's a characteristic of this man. And so his wife comes to him and says, I loathe my wife because of these women. I do not want... Jacob marrying these women in the Hittites in Canaan. So send him away. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. Now that's massive, okay, <laughs> considering the history of this family. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, where did he get all that? (laughs) Why did that come to his mind? Um, I have no doubt that uh, the direction, because like every good husband, you look at your wife and you say, what do you think? Um, And so here... She gave some direction for him. Remember, this is where Isaac found his bride. And so they're going to send um, Jacob to go and get his bride from that same location to her uncle or his uncle eventually. Isaac is now walking in obedience to God. He is blessing Jacob wholeheartedly. That is vital, beloved, because what we see in Isaac, I believe, remember when he found out it was Esau and it says he shook violently, we see a transition in the life of Isaac where he was seeking to walk in disobedience to the Lord and now is walking in obedience to him. And now wholeheartedly calls his son to him and wants to bless him. No hair on his arms this time or on his neck. He, this, is, this is legit. This is the real thing. Before the living God, with an open conscience, or a clean conscience, an open mind, an open heart, he calls Jacob to himself, and he declares this blessing upon him. Because this is what God wants. Don't let that pass too quick. Isaac's doing this because this is what God wants. This is the call of God. At the very beginning where these two were born, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated, he was, um, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. The blessing has already been poured out on Jacob, and now Isaac, before the living God, is going to say another blessing on him with his eyes wide open. 
And so listen to this blessing. God Almighty, El Shaddai, we've heard that before already in this book, bless you. God Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So think about what is, what is going on here, beloved. God bless you. So the blessing of God, the good pleasure of God being poured out on Jacob. Make you fruitful and multiply. Many, many children coming from him. May become a company of people. There will be a large group. Remember, nations will come from Abraham. That blessing is being poured out on Jacob. May he give you the blessings of Abraham, that direct descendant as it's coming down the pike. You are in this line. And to your offspring. And take the possession of the land that was promised to Abraham. And follow in my words. This is immense. I realize that we are so detached from the Old Testament um, times, and that doesn't strike us in the same way. But beloved, this is, this is massive what's taking place here. Why? Because of where it all kicked off. It kicked off with Almighty God. Please notice, it didn't kick off with Isaac saying, I do this. It's not Isaac's blessing. It is, but it's not. The blessing he's pouring out on Jacob is the word of God. Isaac, being somewhat of a prophet, used of the Lord to pronounce this blessing upon Jacob. The blessing that Almighty God goes back to making to Abraham is now coming down the line to Jacob. And the reason that's so vital is that what's being said here is as good as done because it kicks off with God Almighty. It'd be one thing if I promised you something next week. It'd be another thing if I could, without any kind of friction, accomplish that promise for you. If I told you I'm bringing $3 million for Mitch Tingley next Sunday, he'd be back and... But if I promised that, he'd be back with zero expectation. (laughs) But if I said, I'll give you a buck next Sunday. Can't buy anything with it, but I'll give you a buck next Sunday. Expectation's pretty good. It's okay. Expectation's okay. When the sovereign of the universe says, done. Beloved, done. 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 You can question him all you want. You can second-guess him. You can say, oh, I don't know, God. Circumstances don't look like it. Done. When thousands of years pass, and something was said, many things were said by a group of prophets, and they come to completion in absolute perfection in one man, I come away astounded that this is God Almighty who will accomplish his purpose. And so when the sovereign of the universe, almighty God, says to Jacob, here's the blessing. It's as good as done. And so Jacob walks in obedience. That shouldn't surprise us. I mean, of course he walks in obedience. Um, 
It doesn't necessarily say, or it, it says earlier that Jacob is told by his mom, this is what's going to happen to you. So you can stay and die, or you can leave and be incredibly blessed in a different land and go take a wife from that place. Jacob walks in obedience to the words of his parents and to the word of God, and he's going to escape. Verse 5, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So God is very, very evident. His grace is a very, very evident in what's going on in Isaac's life. God's grace is very evident in what's going on in Jacob's life. And God's grace is very evident in what's going on in Rebecca's life. Think about this, you guys. Here, here's a group of sinners that should be in hell and are not. And God in his kindness has blessed Isaac. Now through Isaac has blessed Jacob. And in all of that, God has blessed Rebekah. Why? Because they deserve it? Because they've been so good? Have you seen them act good? No. No, they're undeserving of His grace. They're undeserving. This blessing that is laid out right here by God through Isaac to Jacob is astounding to think about the sinful nature of this man. And to think that God would pour His grace out in such a way, on such a worm? Are you kidding And then I look in the mirror, and it is clear as crystal, he's still about this. God's still doing this. God is still pouring his kindness and grace out. Beloved, please don't ever forget this. It's not grace if he owes it. It's grace because he doesn't owe it. You can't tell him, God, you owe me your mercy and grace. He doesn't. I know at times preachers and different people can speak as if God owes it. No, he does not owe you a thing. We are a group of ingrates at times where everything has been provided through Christ's death on our behalf for us and we actually start to take for granted grace. It's amazing how quickly I can become selfish or or just used to the grace of God. I struggle praying because I get tired or I'm busy because I've got to watch this TV show and I haven't picked up the word. Oh, I've got you fill in the blank excuses all day long where the reality is, no, Dan, the truth is you forgot about the grace of God in your life. You've lost sight of reality of who you are, where you stand and why you stand there. These are the conversations I have with me sometimes where a two-by-four needs to come upside the head to recognize how for granted you have taken the grace of God. Shape up, Dan, and recognize the truth of who you are, why you're that way, and recognize the kindness of God in your life. This blessing that's poured out on Jacob here, this this little guy Jacob, there's no, there's no worth here. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve that. But God pours out his mercy because that is coming out of his very character, his very nature, is to pour out his love, to be kind, to be gracious. 
And so through the line of Abraham, this blessing is declared. Now, perhaps at this point, unless you're reading ahead, which if you are, good for you, I'm proud of you, you must ask the question, yeah, what about Esau? (laughs) I mean, okay, Jacob, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed, you walk in the line of Abraham, this is going to be great for you. Isaac, um, I find it very fascinating, after this blessing, you don't hear about Isaac. Many, many years, some commentators were saying around 50 years of life left, but nothing here, nothing recorded that you're going to hear about Isaac. What did he do in all that time? I don't know. I don't know. It's fascinating that he's one of the longest living patriarchs, but you only have this one chapter specifically directed at him, and now we're told so much of his life, we don't know what happens per se. But nonetheless, God has been kind and gracious and blessed him. So we see the blessing on Jacob. We see the blessing on Isaac. We see the blessing on Rebekah. What about Esau? Listen to this little tidbit. Verse 6. Now Esau saw, (laughs) Esau saw, that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. Abraham's son, the sister of that person, uh, Nebaioth. Uh, th- 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 um, please notice, you guys, you ever heard the phrase, too little, too late? After everything that's happened, after this massive change in the life of Isaac and the change of Rebekah, change of Jacob, you're going to be sending Jacob out, and there's a traumatic or dramatic blessing poured upon him by his dad. He leaves, go stay with my brother and find a wife and be blessed by God, so on and so forth. In all of this, Esau goes, wait a minute, I wasn't supposed to marry those two? Well, okay, I want mom and dad happy too, because apparently nothing's going well for me. And so, of all things, he goes to Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael's the half-brother, the cast-out half-brother of Abraham, as Abraham was with Hagar, and Hagar bore a son against God's will, being anxious and being sinful. Sarah gives her handmaiden to Abraham. They have a child. That's where Ishmael comes from. And now Esau goes, oh, that cast out half-brother, bondservant, son. I'll go take a wife from there, and that will make mom and dad happy, so that way I'll please them. Do you hear what's going on here? There's a very important principle that we could miss here. Here's the principle. He wants to serve and make his parents happy on his terms. Okay? Don't miss that. It's very fascinating when people say, I want to make God happy, so I'm going to do, and they fill in the blank with what their terms are to keep him happy. This is what's at the core when somebody says, I'm not a bad person, I never fill in the blank. Well, you're arguing from a standpoint that you've developed, 
You've denied God's standard. You've put up your own standard. And so in order to get back in the good graces of his parents, Esau says, I'll take a wife from uh, Ishmael, from his line, and then they'll be happy with me. It's too little, too late. This is why in the New Testament we're told that he sought repentance with tears, but it was not there for him. There was no opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Esau is a lost man who has just been swirling around in envy, jealousy, hatred, anger, bitterness, and foolish decision after foolish decision after foolish decision. Beloved, the word, the word that I would place upon Esau is this is a pathetic figure in Scripture. Now here's the irony, okay? Esau is painted as the strong, robust man's man at the beginning of this whole discourse about him. Jacob is the one that stays intense. His mother loves him. But Esau, he is the strong, robust man's man who actually internally is a tiny little boy and is pathetic in who he really is in his heart. Poor decision after poor decision, driven by his lusts, driven by his passions, with no concern unto the Lord, no concern unto his parents, and flooded with envy, and consistently blaming others for his error. Where do you get that? Well, remember, he blames Jacob for the birthright, where he was the one who gladly sold his birthright for that cup of soup. This is a pathetic figure. And this is where the Bible is so interesting, because we look at a figure like that and we go, I am so glad I am not like Esau. Newsflash. We are Esau. I'm not saying we do all the things he's done. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, in our lost state before God, we are pathetic. We flatter ourselves all day long, but beloved, the reality is, apart from the grace of God... We have nothing to put in God's hand and say, here, this is of value. To the point that the prophet says his his good works are as filthy rags before the living God. Even the best stuff we think we've got to offer God is a filthy rag before him, apart from Jesus Christ. And so we see Esau, once again, beloved, crash and burn as he just keeps going around in this circle in this 10-foot hole, going around in this circle, saying, I'm going to get out of here at some point. No, no, you won't. Let me uh, land the plane just a little bit and, and kind of touch on a couple points of conclusion that have been heavy on my heart. And let me say this real quick. These concluding thoughts are not just for the portion we covered today. I'm kind of bringing together a portion from what we've been seeing in this family throughout this, this chap, these few chapters, okay? It's a very sad spectacle to see when the truth comes out that someone, especially a Christian, has been wrapped up in a web of lies and deception. One more time. It's a very sad spectacle to see when the truth comes out that someone, especially a Christian, has been wrapped up in a web of lies and deception. 
Just look at all the collateral damage we've seen in this family. You can see this, when I say this family, yes, um, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau, but Abraham, Sarah, where they, where they lied, where, where Abraham said, now you just be quiet and tell them you're my sister. I don't want them to kill me. Well, what about the harm that might come to me? Uh, tough. You know, that, that concept of you go, you go and, and you be in danger, and that's the way it's going to go. And then we come to Isaac, and Isaac wanting to deceive and bless this son. But then the wife actually has a better deception that, that cancels that, and Jacob's the pawn in this deception to the point of calling on God, saying, God blessed my hunt, Dad, it's me, Esau. You dirty liar. The collateral damage, the deception, the lies, the lust, the trickery. It's, it's so sad to see. And here's where it can lead, okay? Lies, chaos, confusion, more lies to cover the chaos and confusion from the lies, and the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So year after year after year passes, and your greatest desires, you're not found out. So nobody knows. And we've been there. I'm sure you've been there. If you haven't, we don't really have evangelical saints, but if you haven't, um, I would be amazed where something happens and you have the opportunity to hide it or some way to manipulate it. So that way you're not embarrassed The sin is not seen for that which it is, and that bright, shiny door of escape from the penalty of your sin swings wide open. Beloved, your sins, my sins, will find us out. You can try all you want to hide. You can't. When you seek to web together a web of lies and manipulation, it's going to do great harm to you. It's going to do great harm to those around you. And you will see collateral damage following everywhere from those secret sins you're hiding that nobody you think can see. And isn't it fascinating? The one person whose opinion matters the most is the one who sees everything. So what am I talking about? Here's my term. Anxiety-driven decisions with no patience to wait upon the Lord. Anxiety-driven decisions with no trust in God, with patience and clear thinking. Here is a, a clear sign of a wise man or a wise woman to me, is when I can get anxiety-driven and I want to make a quick decision and somebody in godly wisdom says, why don't we take just a little time to pray and consider what God would have us do? Now, I'll be honest with you. In that moment, I want to say, no, that, no, stop, don't do that. Uh, let's, let's act now because I can't sit still. But beloved, truthfully, I have seen this in the lives of some precious people in this room and out of this room who in a moment where you so badly want to rush to the occasion, manipulate the results, and make something happen, they say, no. 
because there's a sovereign God who we can fully trust. So let's pause and seek the Lord and then trust him with the results. You know how against the grain that can be in moments of anxiety and irritation and fear. And yet it is that medicine that tastes so bad going down and yet does so much good in us. And so anxiety-driven decisions with no trust in God, with no patience and no clear thinking. Well, let me just warn you. You've heard the story, I'm sure, about the uh, horseshoe that lost the nail. And then because it lost the nail, it lost the shoe. And the horse that lost the shoe, the horse then stumbled and fell and died. And the soldier on top of the horse fell and died. And because of that particular soldier, the point he had, they lost the battle. And because they lost the battle, then the war was lost. Nail, shoe, horse, soldier, battle, war. Dan, what are you talking about? Those tiny moments where you feel that whispering in your soul, nobody will know. There's the nail. And so, beloved, I want to challenge you. With all my heart, I'm challenging my own heart. I'm just bleeding out over you, okay? This This is me, but I'm sharing it with you. The world and the church of Jesus Christ is in a profound need for stubborn biblicists. People who know what the Word says and are willing to take a hit for it in their personal holiness, in their obedience to that which is true. Not perfectly, but but convicted, stubborn in this. Somebody may not like it. I don't care. It doesn't change the truth. You might lose your job. It doesn't change the truth. You might not be invited back. It does not change the truth. Patient, obedient, trusting God. Patient obedience. Lord, this doesn't make any sense, but I know what I'm supposed to do. So you see how perfect it fits for my brother Mitch to say, hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Beloved, that is the truth. That is the truth. There are so many times in this life from what I've experienced, what I am experiencing, and what I've had dear older saints tell me is there is times in this life where you will not be allowed understanding, but you'll be allowed clear, clarity on what you're supposed to do. The Lord doesn't let you see around the corner, but it's clear this is what God wants me to do. Patient obedience and trusting God with the results. I want to read a quote and then I'll close in prayer. Griffith Thomas wrote this a lot of years ago. While vigor and capacity are very important, far more important and necessary are patient trust in God and consistent integrity. That's why I brought this to you this morning, this this quote, because I love that phrase, consistent integrity. I've, I've said it this way over the years, the man never changed regardless of his surroundings.
So what's necessary is not your capacity or what you can do. It's patient trust in God and consistent integrity. Most human catastrophes have been brought about by men and women regarding themselves as agents instead of instruments. And by thinking that the world cannot possibly be managed except by their shrewdness and sharp practice. (laughs) Ability must be consecrated to God if it is to be of real service. Ability must be consecrated to God if it is to be of real service. Beloved, there are some people in this room who are some of the most talented people I've ever seen in my life in certain areas. Those talents are precious and they're sweet that God's allowed you. But they are of no service to him if they are not put in his service intentionally saying, Lord, I trust you to use me in what way you want. Our scheming, our shrewdness, that's not what gives results. God's not using you because he needs you. He's using you because he loves you. And so as a dear mentor, lifelong mentor of mine from my pre-junior high days, told me years ago, the best ability you will ever have is your availability. Father, I um, 